0: Amen, thank you so much Steve and uh, let me add my welcome if you're new here I'd love to meet you afterwards and get to know you my name's Mike, I'm one of the pastors I'll be speaking from that psalm if you'd like to turn it up it's there in uh, page 544, Psalm 5 and then leading us in the Lord's table uh, one thing before I speak about this psalm is that this week in our church is training week so we've got different opportunities for different people who are involved in all sorts of different ministries for training and on Tuesday night God willing, I'll be doing training for our life group leaders, uh, I think at the far end of the building, and working through what we'll be doing this term. And I just wanted to do a little shout-out to the ladies. So the last time I did life group training, it was nearly all blokes, except for my wife and one other lady, and it would be great ladies who were involved in co-leading life groups if you could come too. We need your voices. Psalm 5. Nathan Sharansky was a Jewish man, He grew up in Russia during the Soviet era, and years later, actually, he became a member of the Israeli parliament, part of the government. But in the Soviet Union, Sharansky was identified as a dissident, a troublemaker, and he was imprisoned in a Siberian labor camp by the KGB, and he was in prison for nine years. Now, during that time, one period of more than a year, he was placed in what was called the punishment cell. And this was a cold, damp room in the basement that measured a little over six feet square for a year. Can you imagine? Now, during this time, Sharansky also endured countless hours of interrogation, and he went on hunger strikes. He was in a constant battle of wills. They were trying to break him. And he had only one possession with him, And it was his constant companion. It was a book of psalms. Just a little book of psalms. And uh, Sharansky, actually, when he went to prison, wasn't a particularly religious man. His wife gave him the book when he went to prison. And he began reading the psalms. And he even started memorizing them. And to his astonishment, he found there was an amazing affinity between his own experience of bondage... And the suffering and distress that the psalm writers spoke of, their prayers became his prayers. Their hope of deliverance became a gleam of light in his dark cell. And after nine gruelling years, during which the psalm book was sometimes confiscated and then reluctantly given back, he was finally released from prison. And the release was carefully choreographed and planned by the authorities to ensure the most favorable coverage in the world papers. An official car drove him to the airport just outside Moscow for a trip to East Germany and then to freedom. Photographers were there ready in place. When he got out of the car, he was just a few minutes away from freedom and the end of nine years of suffering, and here's what happened next. He said, where's my psalm book? And the reply was... You've received everything that was permitted. Quite a rough reply. And Sharansky wrote this. I quickly dropped to the snow. I won't move until you give me back my psalm book. When nothing happened, I lay down in the snow and started shouting, Give me back my psalm book! The photographers pointed their cameras at the sky. After a brief consultation, the boss gave me the book back. Now on that plane ride to freedom, Sharansky kept a promise that he made to himself and he opened the pages of this well-worn book to Psalm 30 and he read it out loud. He said he would do this when he was freed. I extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from shale, preserved me from going down into the pit. The Psalms... Teach us how to pray. In our troubled times, many people have found deep meaning in this book of Psalms. When they felt isolated, it reminded them they are members of a community of faith. When they've been desperate, it has given them comfort and hope. When they've been torn away from home and family, it's given them strength to bear up and persevere with courage. And when they've been put in prison unjustly, the Psalms have enabled them to believe that there is a God who will obtain justice for the oppressed. How does the Psalms do all this? By teaching us how to pray. We don't know how. We're just like the disciples. So we pray. We ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. And for three weeks, we've been in this journey on the Psalms. This is the third week. Psalm 3, we reflected that life is full of troubles, isn't it? And some of them are your own making. But God can be trusted with everything, so take it all to him. Last week in Psalm 4, we learned that in prayer, we should name reality. We don't wash our face and stop crying and get in our uh, religious clothes and put on a prayer voice and, and go to God in some kind of unreal, false way. No, no, no. The Psalms show us that they name reality in the presence of God. Crying, shouting, screaming, roar. Based on that reality, we should then examine ourselves. Do we have a divided heart? Do we have a bitter heart? Is there anything we need to put right? But the end point of naming reality and self-examination is to move to a deeper trust in God. One way of summing up the whole message of the Bible, you can sum up the whole message of the Bible in two words. Trust me. That's what the Bible's saying. God is speaking to you and saying, trust me. And today we're finishing our journey in Psalm 5. And again, we're learning more about how to pray. Now, when you first read it, this psalm does feel pretty similar to the previous two. Some people this week have been giving me feedback and encouragement, and they said, you know, I've been reading Psalm 5. It feels a bit like the other two. And, so, and it does feel like that. So we might be tempted to kind of skim over it and look for something new, but that would be a mistake. We have to understand that these things are written down deliberately to make us slow down In our busy and distracted lives, they want us to slow down and sit with them, and they will release their wisdom over time. You know, there's some medication you take, you can take the medication, and it is slow release, it doesn't instantly kick in, it releases its healing in your body over time. Or if you're a fan of, if you have a sweet tooth, hard candy, seaside rock. You know, you have to work on it for quite a while before it will release its goodness. It's not like a jelly baby. You've got to suck it and see what comes. Uh, These things only release their goodness over time, so let's sit with them. And I want to sit with this psalm today a little bit more briefly than usual, because we're coming to the table, and think about three points. Hear me, lead me, cover me. Three requests in this psalm. Hear me, lead me, cover me. First of all, hear me, verse 1. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for it is to you I pray. David's prayer begins with a plea. Please listen. I wonder if you ever pray like that, do you? Start off by asking God, Would you hear me, Lord? Listen, consider, here, And he says, listen to, in our version it says, my lament. This word is quite an unusual word in the original language. It's not used very often. And lament might not be the best translation for us. Another way of putting it is, my groaning, my sighing, my musing, my inmost thoughts. You know that soundtrack in your head that nobody else hears but you? And it's rumbling along. That's your inmost thoughts. And David says, I want to share that with you, Lord. Please listen to it. And this is how the day begins for him. With a barely audible consciousness of all the stuff going on in your life. Isn't it like that? You woke up today. There it is. All the stuff. (laughs) Here it is again. And here's the thing. God wants to hear about it. God wants to hear about it, whatever it is. He knows about it already, by the way. You haven't got any secrets, but he, as a good father, he wants to know about it. Come on, talk to me, love. What's the matter? Now, David here in this psalm is not in a good place. He is begging for help. He says he's surrounded by enemies in verse 8. Uh, sorry, not verse 8, where is it? I've lost my place already. Begging for help, surrounded by enemies. Oh yeah, verse 8, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. It's surrounded on every side. And maybe you feel like that too. Maybe you feel hemmed in by your problems, your situation. God wants to hear about it. And even if you're not, he wants to know what's going on. Share your life. Whatever your situation, God wants to hear about it. And the advice here is to do it in the morning. Verse 3, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice In the morning, I lay my requests before you. Before you even swing your feet out of bed and touch the floor for the first time, he's waiting for you, ready to hear you. Come to him then. It was said of one of the greatest Christian leaders of the last century, John Stott, London pastor and a world Christian leader, that he had a prayer that he prayed every day before he got out of bed. And it began, Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Father, I praise you as the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Lord Jesus, I praise you as the king and savior of this world. Holy Spirit, I praise you as the sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. And the prayer went on. Pray the same prayer every morning... The morning prayer. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice, says David, and in the morning I lay my requests before you. Here's some other translations. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. At daybreak I plead before you and wait. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait or watch, expectantly. In other words, when we learn to pray, we learn to pray expectantly. We're not just praying through a shopping list, friends. We're not just praying because we have to. Be good because you know you should. You know, you're getting the prayer out of the way, it's some beautiful thing. We're praying because we want to see God act in our lives, and in our world, and in history. And we pray and ask, and then we watch for it. And the word that's used here for watching is a word that was used of watchmen looking at the beacon. You know there's people in ancient times, they, their one job was to watch this beacon that's on the top of a hill or top of a mountain, because it's the only system they have for communicating that the enemy's armies are coming. There's a great scene in one of the Lord of the Rings films, where a character, a little hobbit, climbs up and lights the beacon, and it sets off this chain. And all along the mountain ranges are these These beacons at the top, and they go up in flames, and the next people know. And so on and on it goes. So you'd be watching, if that was your one job, you'd be watching for that beacon to see when the communication comes. The prophets did this. Habakkuk prayed, said, I will stand myself, station myself on the ramparts, and wait. And as David prays and waits expectantly for the answer, he remembers just who he is talking to. Verse 2, my king. And my God. This is powerful language because it's personal. It's not just God. He is my God. Christian friend, he is your God, your king. You know, we spend most of our lives trapped in our own head, listening to our own voice, moaning on about our problems, don't we? It's like an echo chamber. When you come in prayer to God in the morning like this, Something happens. Something breaks in. There is someone, capital S, who is much bigger than all your problems. In fact, he's much bigger than our world. He holds it in the palm of his hand. And we approach this one, this awesome one, personally. You can say, my king, my God. And in the Bible, to say that the Lord is your king and your God is to say that you are in a covenant relationship with him not just like a personal relationship but a covenant relationship and this is a very important key to understanding the whole Bible is that God relates to people in covenants a covenant is a binding legal agreement it's like a contract but a covenant is is more intimate and personal than just, just a legal contract as well as being more formal and binding than just an emotional commitment. A covenant combines both those things, intimacy and formal commitment. And the best example we have in the modern world of a covenant is marriage. Marriage is the most intimate personal relationship two people can get into, and it's also the most binding and committed one. That's a covenant. And so God relates to you and me through a covenant. And when we come to the Lord's table in a little while, what we need to realize is that this is a covenant meal. We eat and drink and remember the covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. God relates to us like that. That's why we can say, my God, my king. So if God is your king, friends, what does that mean for you emotionally? If God is your king, It means this. You are not one who must struggle on your own for your own ends with your own resources. Because he's your king. You are not alone. See what kind of king he is. Verse 4. You are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant Cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. This is the king, totally committed to justice. No corruption in this king. A king of absolute integrity. A judge of absolute integrity. A holy God set apart from our world, who dwells in an unapproachable light. What we learn here is that we approach God on the basis of his character revealed to us in the Bible. And when we read that, I think we should tremble. Have I ever been guilty of the things listed in these verses? Have you? Arrogance? Doing wrong? Lies? Being hateful? wickedness? I have I can't stand in his presence, I'd run for the hills, that's why we need verse 7 but I by your great love can come into your house in other words we pray not based on the purity of our own track record or who would have a chance we don't pray based on the fineness of our own character our character quality we are welcomed and heard because of the love of God His undeserved kindness to you, a lost, wicked sinner, who he bids to come into his house and eat at his table. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. And so, what does that do to your heart? It takes away all sense of entitlement. God doesn't owe you anything. It takes away our pride everybody owes us something. But it also removes our insecurity, our anxiety. Will God accept me? Will he hear me? He's promised he does. It assures us of a gracious listening ear for all of our troubles. And it is beautifully humbling. We come to God, therefore, with all respect in prayer. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. And the temple, remember, was the place... At this time, it was still a tent in David's time. And it was on a hill called Zion. And they knew that that was where God had promised he would specially dwell and be with his people. So they looked to the hill. They looked to the place of God's dwelling. Talk about the temple. I will go there and I'll be there. And I'll be with God's people. And I'll meet him there with them. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. And having asked God to hear him, secondly, David now asked God to lead him, lead him. And this is an essential part of us learning to pray. We don't merely pour out our feelings to God, as important as that is. We also seek his leading and his guiding and his path, his straight path in a crooked and wicked world. And we need this because of the nature of our context. Look at verses 8 to 10. Lead me, says David in verse 8. In your righteousness because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Now, we don't know who these enemies are. But my word, that is a gruesome portrait, isn't it? These people are being exposed. He's praying, exposing them before God we should do that and the main characteristic of wicked people in this psalm is found in their speech not a word can be trusted because their heart is actually filled with malice their throat is an open grave what an image somebody's mouth is so destructive that it's waiting to kill someone and receive the body And with their tongues they tell lies. These are people who are so clever and manipulative that none of their words can really be trusted because you never really know what they really mean. Other translations speak of flattery. You know, puffing somebody up so that you can gain power over them. Boasting. A tongue that makes big claims, Puffing themselves up falsehood. You know, we're sometimes tempted to think that people in the ancient world were more simple and primitive than we are. Kind of caveman imagery. That's what's called chronological snobbery. What we read here is this is just like our society. It was an age in which the sins of speech abounded. And this kind of talk offends God and hurts human beings. You may have know the old expression... Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me? It's a load of rubbish, isn't it? Words will always hurt me. Words will always hurt me. It's totally the wrong way around. And I want to ask you now, where are you going to be this time tomorrow? This time tomorrow, where will you be? And what words will be around you? What kind of words will be shaping you, spoken to you? What kind of words will you have to engage with and respond to? See, we live in an age of great sins of speech as well. C.S. Lewis, who we've quoted many times here before, wrote about these psalms. He said, I think when I began to read them, it surprised me a bit. I half expected that in a simpler age, uh, where more evil was done with a knife, a big stick, and a firebrand, Less would be done by talk, but in reality the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more than this one, which the most civilized societies share. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter. Under his tongue is ungodliness and vanity, deceitful lips, lying lips, words full of deceit, the whispering of evil men, cruel lies that cut like a razor, talk that sounds as smooth as oil and will wound like a sword. sword, Pitiless jeering. It is all over the Psalms. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tuttling, lying, scolding, flattery and circulation of rumours. No historical readjustments are here required. We all know this. We are in the world we know. We even detect in that muttering and wheedling chorus... Voices which are familiar. You know people who talk like this, don't you? One of those voices may be too familiar for recognition. Our own voice. You see, we're tempted to speak like this too. To use our words to gain influence. To uh, use our words to criticize other people, to tear them down. To say things about other people we would never say if they were in the room. To shade the truth, to cover ourselves, to puff ourselves up, to use our words to make us look good, even while we're pretending to be humble. Gosh, words are, are are dangerous, aren't they? And so we want to pray verse eight with David: "Lead me, Lord, in Your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make Your way straight before me." You see. Here's a key insight. Just as you're praying for God to change your circumstances, you're asking him to change you too. Amen? Just as you're asking him to change your circumstances, you ask him to change you too. Prayer changes history. Prayer changes situations. Prayer must change the person praying. When David asks, "Lead me, he's really asking two things. One, protection from wicked people, and two, protection from becoming like them. Lord, don't let me go down that path. Lead me down your path. When the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, he's writing the most devastating description of the human condition, probably in world literature, Romans chapter 3, he reaches for his psalm book to describe human condition, and he actually pulls out Psalm 5. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they tell lies. And Paul is saying that we're all like this. It's not like we're the good guys over here and we're praying about those horrible people over there. We're all in it together. And so as we come to the table this morning, as God's people here in Chesington, we're praying, cover me. Hear me, lead me, but Lord, cover me too. And in verse 11, we find that something quite lovely has happened to David as he prayed. He no longer feels alone. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. You see, David started the psalm on his own. Listen to my words, my sighing, hear my cry. He's gone from I to we by the end of the poem, by the end of the prayer. And prayer is a journey for the person praying. You have to pray until you have a breakthrough. I've been really struck by pastoral conversations I've had with people recently who are struggling with various things. And I've been really struck by two things, I think. One is is the seriousness with which they really grieved their sin. And two is that they never really stopped and prayed in God's presence that thoroughly. We're too busy and distracted. We need to slow right down, bring it all to God in prayer. And pray until you have a breakthrough. And for David, the breakthrough is the awareness that he is not alone. He's part of a community community of believers. He's praying and he becomes aware there's a whole load of us in this together. We're we're the ones who bow down towards the holy temple. We're the ones who hear God's voice and are glad. We're the ones who sing for joy together. And at the end of the psalm, even though the threat is still present, verse 12, he still needs a big shield, his perspective has changed. He breaks free from loneliness He's no longer a man praying on his own, hemmed in by foes. He's now conscious of a whole company of people who join him in prayer and praise together. And that's what we are doing here today. As we pray together, Lord, cover me with your protection, we remember that we are already covered by God's protection in the most profound way because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood his work on the cross for sinners and jesus christ is our shield you think about a shield in the ancient times you're holding it here and what's going to hit that shield all sorts of horrible things you don't want to hit you swords arrows axes goodness knows what other kinds of projectiles and weapons And at the end of the battle, you hope the shield will still hold, but you know that shield's going to be pretty battered and beaten up and smashed. But you will be safe. And Jesus on the cross was our shield. He takes the beating. He takes the suffering. He takes the piercing and the mockery. He takes the punishment and he spares us. And so he is our rock and our refuge. Let's pray as we come to the table. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. And Lord, we know in a a way that David could only dream of, of how you would surround your people with favor as a shield, that you did it through the most costly price, the only begotten Son of God who came to earth to save sinners. Thank you. Amen.